Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. World Environment Day last Friday and there's so many topics we could raise with Cam Walker but this morning wanting to speak about energy policy and also uh, a remote paddle out uh, event that they've got planned this week and and, and touch on also the, the ongoing um, controversy I suppose you'd call it around uh, Brumbies in the high country and I suppose energy policy Cam is still vexed um, but uh, some interesting stats coming out in the last little um bit of time uh, in the US for instance renewables actually met more of the energy demand than coal-fired power in that country for the first time and here the economics are changing fast too but we're hearing much about a so-called gas-led recovery in Australia how likely is it that we might go that way do you think rather than uh, having a you know the sort of broader trend around the world um, for renewables I think if the federal government gets its way, there's no doubt we will have a gas-led recovery. As we all know, as we're, you know, facing the prospect of the recession and as we're trying to kind of, you know, kick-start the economy uh, as the pandemic hopefully starts to wind down, uh, the federal government has created a commission that is going to drive the economic recovery. And unfortunately, that's heavily stacked with people from the fossil fuel industry and the leadership of that commission and key people in the federal government are saying, well, what we need to do is, you know, basically dig our, our way out of recession and drill our way out of the recession. So there's no doubt that that's the agenda of the federal government, but it is actually really heartening that there is really beginning to be a backlash against that because people are realising that if we put public money into infrastructure like pipelines, in particular gas pipelines, then that locks us into years, if not decades, of being locked into that resource. So I, I think people are seeing that this is one of those moments where... We get a choice, we're at the fork at the road moment, and we get a choice, do we want to go in one way or the other? Federal government's trying to steer us towards further entrenching our reliance on fossil fuels, but I think most people in the community, and certainly where the good money is, wants to go somewhere else, and that's obviously into renewables and storage and energy efficiency. And with this new kind of conversation and and, uh, priority, I I guess, given to gas, what exactly are we talking about? I mean, is it for export? Is it for our own use? What's the government putting forward as the kind of justification for um, expanding the gas sector and, and using it to kind of leverage our economic recovery? Most of it will be for export. Certainly what is proposed for up north and there's plans to develop basins in the Northern Territory and Queensland. So that will be for export. And that's the reason that you and I are now paying high prices if we are using gas at home. That's because we're competing with international consumers. Uh, Here in Victoria, the Victorian government has, has announced its intention to lift the moratorium on onshore gas drilling and they say that, you know, local businesses will get first dibs at this and there's an ongoing conversation about whether we should have what's called a national gas reserve. So we allocate a percentage of production and put it aside for domestic gas users. Unless you put a cap on prices, it actually doesn't help people. It just means you get the gas. It doesn't mean you can necessarily afford to pay for the gas. So it is complex, but the problem is because at the federal government, has so pursued an export gas industry that everything is skewed by that simply because of the volumes of use. 
and this idea of gas still being a bridge between sort of brown and black coal fire generation and renewables. So that's not really the core of the argument anymore. It's, it's more about um, export industries. Well, sadly, the federal government keeps talking about transition uh, through using gas, and that that is an argument from the 1990s. It did make sense then, but with the developments in, particularly in storage, where prices just keep coming down, we're at, we're at that point of technological breakthrough, as happened years ago with solar, solar photovoltaics. There was a point where only the absolute, you know, kind of energy nerds would have them on their homes. And then there was a point where the technology became so efficient that suddenly they were worth having for everyone. And look around, you know, Melbourne now, so many houses have them. Um, So we're witnessing a similar technological kind of breakthrough moment with storage and certainly with renewables. What's happening is the cost of renewables is lower than new build coal or gas um, to produce electricity. And then, of course, we have the national electricity market. So we're now trading electricity around the the east coast grid, and that allows us to access kind of cheaper electricity at certain times as well. So the the, the situation has really changed. Gas as a transition is really an outdated concept, but unfortunately it's one that the industry keeps pushing. And if if you look at social media at present, probably your feed is full of ads from, you know, gas companies and and, and similar groups saying, oh, you know, gas is clean and green. But the fact is it isn't. It's a, it's a potent driver of climate change. Methane, as we know, is worse uh, than carbon. Uh, but also it's it's no longer required as a transition fuel. It's not required in manufacturing anymore, and it's certainly not required in domestic household use. And we've come around to uh, business and, and industry groups, not gas industry, but, but others uh, kind of accepting and, and, and calling for more certainty on energy policy and, and further kind of embracing of renewables as prices decrease and storage technologies evolve and, um, and increase our capacity to, to store renewable energy and that sort of thing. Uh, how are we likely to see this play out? Because if that trend continues, which it seems like it would, and it feels like perhaps an, an outdated view of, of investing in gas when we might not be you know needing to or able to rely on it in, in years time is there likely to be any pressure from business to actually go kind of harder down the renewables route oh absolutely I think there is um, the uncertainty that exists and has existed now for well over a decade because the federal government is kind of drawn between you know the climate deniers in their ranks and the people that get climate change so there's been a lack of leadership in the policy space at the federal level, which means the state governments have had to step up. So most of the states in Australia now have a net zero emissions target by mid-century. So they're attempting to put some certainty into the policy framework space that then allows business to understand, OK, you know, what do we need to plan for? Are we planning for a carbon-constrained future? There's also the global dimension. Many of our large companies are international and are working in uh, jurisdictions where there is already robust carbon or climate policies, and so they're planning for that. But I think that the lack of certainty from the federal government, and it just keeps going on and on and on, is a destabilising influence, both for the rollout of renewable energy across the country, the lack of you know targets and, and clear direction, uh, but also directly impacting on businesses who are like, well, you know, are we planning for a, a carbon tax down the track? Are we planning for a carbon-constrained uh, economy through the use of policy regulation? 
do we let the market rule? And the market, of course, is driving us towards a low-carbon future anyway because renewables are becoming cheaper. So this lack of policy clarity really is hurting, particularly larger businesses, I think, that are putting you know big dollars into big infrastructure and then not really quite sure about which way to go. Cam Walker's with us with Friends of the Earth and really been speaking to this program on a monthly basis for about 11 years and in some ways it feels like Groundhog Day um, passing World Environment Day and still having the climate conversation, Cam, but it is important that we keep engaging on the issue. Um, what um, Friends of the Earth is planning is a bit of a, a, a virtual paddle out to raise awareness of the um, ongoing exploration of gas and I'm, I raise it. We don't often raise the kind of actions that, that Friends of the Earth plans, but because it is a different kind of the era to be planning, um, you know, in inverted commas, direct action uh, type events. I mean, what is the thinking around, um, you know, virtual uh, actions of this kind because we are in the pandemic after all? We are, yes. And and when the lockdown was announced in March, you know, we basically put everything online. So now we have our public forums instead of in a physical space, we have them online. All our protest activity, you know, basically was put online, which is what we've done today. So we're having a virtual paddle out. So normally, you know, to, uh, you know, show your opposition to something, you get out on the street. Whereas this was one, the theory was you could do it at home and, with, you know, make it a little bit of fun, post yourself on your old paddle board or your long board or your stand-up board in your backyard or in your lounge room, tagging the right people, which in this case is the Premier and the Resources Minister, Jacqueline Symes, and, and say, don't allow offshore gas drilling in Western Victoria, which is currently being considered for a very large section of the West Coast from the Otway, from Cape Otway West all the way across pretty much the South Australian border. So, yeah, we did decide to go, uh, you know, online, to go virtual, uh, out of respect for the medical advice that is being put around, around, uh, you know, large gatherings of people. And another issue that's um, kind of been in the news over the past few weeks is Brumbies in the high country. It's an issue that's been around for a long time, but this is um, because the Australian Brumby Alliance lost a federal court case with Parks Victoria um, in their attempt to stop culling feral horses in the high country. Can you explain a bit about what's going on there and, um, and, and I guess, the, the nature of the opposition to culling of feral horses? Yeah, so of course this is a really emotional issue. Um, in particularly the high country, we have a, a large number of feral species that are causing huge problems. So obviously foxes and deer in particular. Pigs are an issue in some areas and, and wild horses or feral horses are certainly in many parts of the, of, of the high country. So there's been long plans to remove the bulk of the wild horse population out of the mountains, and this has been done uh, largely through trapping and rehoming, uh, whereby, you know, the horses go to homes. But uh, because of the rapid growth in the horse population in the last couple of years, Parks Victoria decided that in the two key populations in one area on the Bogong High Plains, they would continue to trap and attempt to rehome uh, those horses, but in what they call the Eastern Alps, which is kind of east of Omeo, um, up in the mountains, that they would use ground culling. So they would put shooters into the areas that have been most badly affected by the fires, the high conservation areas that were burnt this summer. And then there was a federal court case, and uh, that was that found in favour of Parks Victoria, which allowed them to go on with the coals. So the coal was going to happen, then it wasn't going to happen. Then there was an injunction that was put, so then the culling was stopped. The injunction was lost, which meant the 
culling could proceed. And that seems to be the status quo at present that um, as effectively from last week, Parks Victoria can proceed with its cull um, of horses in the Eastern Alps. And what, I mean, what significance is it that it's right up there on the border of New South Wales? Is there, uh, I suppose, uh, a similar policy happening in New South Wales or is it quite a different regime there? It has been quite different and, of course, we have a porous border. There's no fences between Victoria and New South Wales. So if you get a horse population or, or a deer population or a pig population, for that matter, and they grow on one side of the border, then they move into new habitat. So there's constant flow of horses, uh, you know, across the border, as with the other feral species. New South Wales has been a little bit more constrained by this concept that horses should be up in the snowy mountains because of what they call cultural connections. Um, They used to remove horses from the Snowy Mountains National Park and then they stopped doing them. And uh, it's also in flux at present where they announced, particularly after last summer's fires, that they would start removing horses again. Up there, they don't use shooting, as I understand it. They use um, capture or trapping and then uh, attempt to rehome. But, yes, I understand that the Deputy Premier has just intervened again and announced that there will be no further uh, removal of horses up in New South Wales. So it is really in both states in in a real state of flux. And I think, you know, governments are trying to do the right thing to protect the environment, but then, of course, they come up against this strong emotional attachment that many people feel towards having wild horses up in our mountains. Yeah, and that that sort of opposition um, seems to be from very sort of different sections of the kind of political divide, I suppose you could say. There's, you know, animal rights groups who you you can understand exactly why they're concerned about culling, but then there's kind of, you know, conspiracy theory elements to it and almost kind of a a culture war element as well with people seeing that the Brumby is a real symbol of kind of settler Australia as well. Um, and the Victorian opposition is is calling for culling to be eased, eased too. Where do you see this playing out politically, um, you know, given that sort of culling is looking like recommencing again very soon? Yeah, you're right. Like, it's a, it's a remarkable mix of people. Um, I would suggest that there's a lot of just, you know, people that love horses and they just, you know, want to, you know, they don't want to see horses hurt, which I fully understand. And they're not necessarily politically aligned. There are people who um, are definitely on the right and what I'd call rural right-wing populists. So they're pushing a, you know, anti-national park, anti-green agenda. And they're saying that, you know, if you remove horses, you're damaging our traditional settler culture. So it's it's always hard when what should be an environmental issue gets caught up in the culture wars. I think I would assume that um, if Parks Victoria continues with the culls, um, that it will happen and that, you know, people will be upset. But, you know, frankly, life will go on. Um, I don't think it it will become a massive issue, you know, into the indefinite future because people, the majority of people, I think, realise that with climate change bearing down on us, with, you know, the fires that we keep having up in the mountains in our national parks, and we're basically talking about the Alpine National Park, you know, we need to continue to remove the large, hard-hooved feral animals like horses and deer out of this park. Um, so, you know, I think most people accept that as upsetting as it may be and, you know, Uh, It will happen and people will move on. Well, Cam, um, thanks again for joining us this morning and all the best with the rest of your... um, Maybe you've got a holiday, maybe you don't. Sounds like there's going to be a bit of action there at Friends of the Earth and um, we'll catch you again in a month's time. Thanks. Talk to you then. Cam Walker, um, he's over at Friends of the Earth. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. What is it about the structure of the university business model that makes it particularly vulnerable to the pandemic? Um, Professor John Quiggins taken the time to spell this out in an article in Inside Story. Um, John's with the University of Queensland School of Economics and it's lovely to have you on Triple R. Um, and yeah, higher education has been particularly hard hit through the coronavirus shutdown. Of course, it's a major employer as well and um, the future of many young people are kind of you know got some question marks around it but why is it um, being you know why has it been particularly crunched John? Well I think um, part of what you um, uh, what you get in the intro it illustrates that uh, we don't really have a coherent view of what's going on We're on the one hand talking about higher education which is a concept which you know, dates back to you know, a century ago when very few people went to university, so that it was it was this um, elite thing just just for the select few. On the other hand, talking about a business model and universities, enterprises, uh, and the third reality is, of course, that um, in terms of uh, in terms of educating young Australians, it's basically a government responsibility that's been shifted onto their sector, which is in turn a kind of hybrid of ancient elite institutions and export business, and and. Uh, these things have come together uh, in the uh, pandemic to produce the crisis we have. That is, the universities have relied on thinking themselves as businesses, exporting education by, by bringing in overseas students. Uh, the government's been happy to go along with that because it means they don't have to take responsibility for post-school education. Uh, and when the uh, when the crisis hit, of course, the government then refused to help the universities as they helped other industries. Uh, because they really treat them in this context as part of the cultural establishment that isn't an industry. But on the other hand, uh, of course, there was no, no revenue coming in. And so we're, we're seeing uh, cuts, cuts happening on significant scale this year if we don't get a return to normal next year on a much larger scale then. Yeah, and, and we saw that play out in the form of the government kind of changing the rules on the fly, really, to exclude universities from the JobKeeper payments. I mean, what can we read into that and and the the way that the government kind of views the universities and the level of support they should be given from the Commonwealth? Well, of course, um, part of it is, is uh, you know, the core of it, in some sense, is culture war type hostility, that you know, they don't like the universities, but, of course, they couldn't... Um, uh, they couldn't have uh, coherently done that if the universities were either a public service department. They haven't been laying off people in, in the Department of Immigration, for example, even though obviously we haven't got much immigration happening. Uh, and equally, they couldn't have picked out a company that they liked and said, well, disliked rather, and said, we don't like your company, we're going to exclude you. So it's precisely because the universities are in this anomalous position that that was feasible. Uh, and the further complication when the universities themselves react is that uh, they are actually legally creatures of state governments, and so they relied on that fact uh, to reject, for example, uh, the idea of, of a jointly negotiated deal with the unions uh, to manage the, uh, manage the consequences of the decline in revenue. So, so we really have something which uh, uh, doesn't fit into any any category, which an ambiguity which worked very well. A long while for both the government, uh, who could 
essentially disclaim responsibility for university management who really aren't responsible to anybody uh, and the money kept coming in from overseas students so, so both groups were happy. Uh, once that stopped, we've seen, seen that fall out completely. Yeah, that's so interesting what you say there, that their kind of quasi non-government organisation status has worked well when, uh, you know, previously, but the structural issues obviously were there um, and for all to see, uh, you know, I suppose well before the March closure of the borders to many international students as well. I mean, many people were already seeing these big kind of um, gaps, I suppose, in, in yeah. the model. Well, it worked well, as I say, for the government and for university management. Not nearly so well for uh, university staff and domestic students. I mean, better than better than alternatives. But um, uh, we had your continuous changing of policy, um, uh, so that sometimes there were effectively uh, effectively people could go to university if they wanted. At other times, uh, limited places and limited entry. So, uh, and I should mention. Um, uh, yeah, we further have the problem, which I mean, that I think the category higher education helps to reinforce. They have an, a largely separate system of vocational education, which has also been catastrophically damaged by business-type rhetoric, the dismantling of TAFE in favour of private providers and then the disaster of, of the help. And so um, we're really in this position where, in practice, uh, nearly every young person needs to do education or training beyond school, uh, but no one really takes responsibility for it in the way that they do or making sure that there's a high school place available for every student, for example. Yeah, and the, the other uh, challenge, I guess, to that is that as more and more people, um, you know, head to university and head into you know, postgrad um, as well and, and obtain these qualifications, that you could argue that the qualifications aren't kind of you know, worth as much as they might have been previously, even though they're paying sort of huge amounts of money for that particular degree too. I mean, how do you see the state of higher education coming out of this and I guess the attractiveness for school leavers to embark on, an, on a you know, lengthy and an expensive degree? Well, I think there's no real alternative. I mean, as I say, there's, uh, there's an alternative in the sense of, uh, you know, people can, um, you know, people can engage in either university education or, or vocational education, and, mm. and the division between those is kind of artificial. But uh, essentially, the jobs that you could get, uh, yeah, out of year ten include, yeah, at, at, yeah, certainly when I left school, maybe when I was at school, which was a long time ago, half kids left school at year ten and they all got jobs. Um, uh, that there yeah, are essentially no jobs available for somebody at year ten. The apprenticeship model, uh, which is the third leg of this, has really been really shrivelled. Um, and so, so while of course it's an expensive venture to go to university or to get post post school, post school training in a trade, the uh, alternatives are even less attractive. Uh, yeah, the yeah, there are very few very few good jobs. You end up with underemployment and um, yeah, if you can get anything. So there really is no alternative but to uh, find some way of providing post-school education and training uh, as a right to everybody. And, and before we get into some, I suppose, some sort of maybe solutions or, or way forwards, um, John, I should remind you that we're speaking with Professor John Quiggin. He's with the University of Queensland and um, he's spelled out some really interesting ideas in an article called Split System in Inside Story. Um, I, I mean, looking back, there has been quite imaginative, um, I suppose, well, maybe even innovation in the way that we fund um, higher education through the HECS or HELP schemes in the past and also the demand-driven model that, that was under the Gillard government. And, and so we have had sort of, high, sort of various different high points, but 
uh, there haven't obviously been enough um, to mm. avert this current situation. You know, what, 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 I mean, have we just kind of just been playing around the edges or, or, or what do you, how do you see those different innovations in the past? Well, as I say, I think, I mean, partly it's conceptual. I think we need to, um, all those things have, have um, all those things have, have stuck within these older categories and I think we need to do what was done with, with school education in the 19th century, with high school education in the 20th, and and accept at the national level a responsibility of providing a post-school education to everybody, um, rather than, as I say, persisting with this mess of, of quasi-NGOs, the universities, of, um, of a drastically cut-back TAFE system at the state level, and then this mess of private providers um, uh, where we've seen... Yeah, Disastrous phases, of course, and I don't think that model stabilised. We, so, if we had that, if we had that view, we could um, we we should start, in my view, with an establishment of a national post school education system funded by the federal government, uh, and uh, with a responsibility to provide education rather than pretending you have know, thirty odd competing uh, competing institutions who. You know, for example, to all, you know, compete against each other by marketing in ways that it, it makes no sense for public service. Uh, so I think the crucial step is, is for the federal government to take responsibility for post-school education for everybody. In that sense, yeah, Scott Morrison's recent rhetoric has some has some of the right uh, some of the right tones, but whether we'll see the reforms we need seems unlikely, especially given you know, his education minister's hostility to the university sector. We've spoken a bit on this show about some of the sort of opportunities that the pandemic provides for these types of large-scale reforms that might sort of not have been so apparent or obvious before because these flaws have been exposed in, in so many different ways. Given that universities are really suffering at the moment from a lack of enrolment from international students, and that will likely continue for kind of a number of years, given that international students don't kind of often just come for one semester, but it's a, it's a lengthy kind of investment in, in their education and in Australian society too. I mean, do you feel that there is a, a particularly good opportunity now with the suppression in enrolments to enact some of these changes? Well, certainly, I think um, as with, with a lot of these things, is that, you know, we, you know, we've rolled along, you know, um, muddling through for a long time and lots of things. And now, at all, in all sorts of issues, we're facing a choice between um, making big progress and, and having potentially completely disastrous collapse. So we could imagine, for example, and you know, this is effectively what the what the stated policies of the both the government and the university management imply that uh, we'll come to twenty twenty one, there won't be a substantial re enrolment of international students. Uh, the government won't uh, it said it won't increase funding for domestic students and so the whole system could suddenly be faced with um, something approaching collapse. Uh, alternatively, we could take the opportunity to uh, uh, to make positive steps forward. And again, I mean that's kind of been flagged in terms of actually putting a real effort into guaranteeing uh, post school education for everybody. Now, which of those will happen, I think uh, uh, remains to be seen. Obviously, every every week brings something totally new uh, in this environment. But but certainly, uh, the kinds of um, the kind of view that well that we can't really change very much. This is the way the system works. I think uh, that that a particular conceptual start just just has broken down pretty thoroughly with the pandemic. We suddenly discovered that all sorts of things which seem totally impossible in fact are quite possible. 
That's true. And I mean, are you seeing a, a, a difference between, uh, I mean, you've already pointed out that the different scenario between the VET or vocational education sector and uh, the higher education sector, but also between, say, the group of eight and the more suburban universities, because we're seeing, seems like more bad news around what's happening with some of our really vital um, suburban institutions versus some of the larger ones. Well, again, yeah, I mean, I think I think we're seeing that kind of, yeah, that very, those very big different, different impacts. And I suppose, I think, um, again, we, we, you know, we have to raise the question, why, why do we have this massively differentiated system? I mean, obviously, if we look at the school level, we know, yeah, the public, is the government school system. I mean, we know that some schools are better resourced than others and so forth, but the object has always been to provide a good education for everybody. And so, so we have we have this leftover from... Yeah, 20th century history that really makes doesn't really make a great deal of sense. Do you feel like at all there would be any resistance from some of the sort of larger sandstone universities to more direct government control, given that they sort of oh, you know are absolutely yeah profit making institutions? Well, the profit in the sense well, yeah, that they're I, not for profit, I, but you know <laughs> you know what I yes. mean. <laughs> they're quasi. I mean, yeah. I think not only them. I mean, I think I think all, yeah, it hasn't. It, yeah, this is if you look at the situation of university management, um, uh, they're in a Enviable position. Um, yeah, they really aren't. Yeah, theoretically, they're responsible legally to state governments. Well, they don't. Yeah, the state government doesn't care. Um, and um, obviously, they like yeah, like getting money from the federal government. They can essentially decide how much they pay themselves, uh, how many senior administrators to employ, and so forth. Uh, and they do so on a scale which is quite startling. I mean, the vice the vice chancellors, but even the administrators further down the level are paid far more than top public servants, for example. And can I, I mean, just go to the, the heart of education is that these generally young people within the system and it must be an anxious-making time right now, particularly those completing the school year, you know, in a, in a pandemic <clears throat> and they're, they're sort of 13 years of schooling, <clears throat> most of them, and then heading into this higher education yeah. situ- situation while its future's being debated as it is at <clears throat> the moment. I mean, we're... What are you, your thoughts around the plight yeah. of students? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, they, I mean, lots of people all set to start this year and then we're told it's not going to happen or at least not going to happen in, in physical terms. We haven't really seen... Uh, haven't really seen the impact. Um, I mean, haven't worked it out yet. I mean, it, uh, my perception is that... Um, Online education has proved more problematic than, than uh, other aspects of working from home, for example. But that's it's going to be very difficult, I think, to uh, uh, to determine all that until well down the track. So, um, so obviously, we're we're limping along with with the online um, online teaching and attempting to work out how we can get back to things. But um, uh, so there, there are those short term problems that uh, are going to be uh, there. At least as long as uh, as long as we have uh, substantial social distancing requirements, um, that sort of uh, I, a problem I haven't devoted the time to. Maybe I should have. <laughs> well, that's the next piece. Maybe. Um, thanks yeah. so much for having a chat with us today. Thank you, um, Professor John Quick, and he's over at the University of Queensland. And um, you can um, catch his writing in in the Inside Story, and you can find that online. His article is called "Split System," and I think um, putting forward, I suppose, a central idea there that someone, um, probably the federal government, should take responsibility for post school education in Australia. Triple. Ah.
heard last week that Australia is heading into a recession and um, pretty much in recession right now. And so stimulus is likely to follow. And um, you might have heard that last week the federal government started with stimulus spending and having a look at the building sector. They announced a program called Home Builder. And uh, that scheme's value is around $668 million. And the idea behind it is that uh, $25,000 will become available for people wanting to build a new home or major renovation uh, over the value of $150,000. There's some means testing around it and uh, I suppose it's fair to say the response to this program has been mixed. Um, Many people are wanting to see stimulus spending uh, set Australia up for the future and this scheme's actually quite narrow. Uh, Few people will qualify and it's unclear if social housing packages will follow this one. And so we've asked um, Associate Professor Wendy Stone to join us. She's um, doing housing and and social policy research over at Swinburne's Research Centre. And it's great to have you with us, Wendy. And I suppose, um, as I kind of just set up there, there's many people wanting to see stimulus do a whole bunch of things uh, because we've had longstanding issues in housing that we've spoken on this program about over a long time. Where do you sort of sit on the spectrum of responses to the Home Builder program? Well, good morning and thanks for having me on. Um, I I feel, um, again, I I have a mixed um, reaction. I think that that any kind of public spending at the moment um, is welcome, but there have to be measures around that public uh, use of funds uh, to make sure that the, the kind of intended outcomes and any unintended consequences of public expenditure are understood really well and very clearly targeted. Um, At the moment, a lot of people are hurting. Uh, They were hurting already before the coronavirus hit us. We've had for a number of years a very well-documented level of unaffordable housing in Australia that that really um, quite rightfully has been described as the housing crisis. And the pandemic has uh, intensified that and really illuminates where some of the biggest cracks are. And unfortunately, it's also added to that with, um, for example, uh, an approximate 7% of reduced uh, jobs in just the construction industry alone since this virus has hit us. So there are, um, there's, there's welcome expenditure, but um, getting it right is the, is the key here. And how do you conceptualise, I guess, how this particular package has been targeted? Because, I mean, I don't sort of, you know, know too many people who would even be planning renovations of upwards of $150,000 or if, if they were, that they'd actually need 25000 to kind of finish those off. Who is the government sort of really targeting here in your view? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and and just to I guess just to very briefly recap what the the parameters of that um, the program seem to be. It's just recently announced, so more details to follow um, over the coming week or two, I expect. But basically, the home builder announced by Prime Minister last week offers homeowners, uh, including first homeowners, but not restricted to them, uh, a grant of twenty five thousand uh, dollars that will either go towards building a new home that um, to the total capped value of $750,000 or to spend uh, money on a renovation that's um, of the total expense of between $150,000 and $750,000. Um, and so I guess when I see this, it, it's, um, it supports in some ways the, the um, people who do benefit from the relatively narrow schemes like the First Homeowners Grant 
um, it's a nice move that this is not restricted to first homeowners because our research shows that there are plenty of people who, for example, um, after a separation or after a, another kind of life event, also need help uh, to get into um, secure housing. But what I think um, is the missed opportunity here is that, to a large degree, the people that would be spending this money uh, in either buying a home, you know, building a new home or renovating to this very high level would be doing so pretty much anyway. And this is where the main criticism is. Um, it's not that these people uh, won't benefit from this level of support, but there are many, many people at the moment who would benefit more from this expenditure of public funds. Um, the, main, the main comment I have is that if we're using public money, we really want public value rather than private outcomes. Uh, so giving this money to people who are private owners of their property already really misses the opportunity for a wider public good outcome. Um, it's, it's not really future thinking in that, in that way. It's basically sort of uh, setting us up in the status quo that we are where, where homeowners have significantly greater uh, indirect support typically than uh, other people in other parts of the housing system, most notably social housing tenants and private renters. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been thinking about it and I haven't seen any commentary on this, but I'm wondering if it was pretty much just a, a, a grant there for those that might be wavering, thinking, well, look, now's not the time to be doing the renovation or buying that home that we were planning on buying. Um, we might put it off for a year or two and, and this is the, the government saying to the sector, well, look, we're going to try and get those people on the line, uh, over the line and, and get them spending even in a recession. That, that could be right. There could be some um, projects that do go ahead um, because of this grant that are really, you know, it could just be that final seal um, and of confidence. And that's, um, I guess, where the government's coming from. Um, my, um, uh, I guess, our, our take, just based on the evidence about where the real gaps are in the supply of housing and in uh, housing repairs, what, what's really needed is new construction, certainly, but we, we know that in all states and territories of Australia, the waiting list for public housing far exceeds the actual construction of, um, of any kind of public or community housing that's available. And this is where a really large, longer-term impact could be made. Uh, if we can think about targeting the stimulus to those construction jobs, and it is really about jobs when we're thinking about what the government's done here, um, those same jobs could be redirected towards publicly uh, available housing. Um, there's also um, evidence in each state and territory that there are significant numbers of public and community housing dwellings that, that really do need repair. So a lot of this stimulus is, is geared towards repair and, and not only new build, but if we think about... Uh, applying those jobs in the construction sector to improving uh, public housing, community housing, Indigenous housing in ways that meet current sustainability and energy ratings that really reduce the, the running costs for the occupants over time and, and sort of help not only to house people but also to lift them out of poverty as they are housed well. These are really... Um, this is the opportunity, I think, which myself and many others are, are 
indicating that it's, it's a missed opportunity in the current announcement. We're speaking with Associate Professor Wendy Stone from the Centre for Urban Transitions and Director of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute at Swinburne University, all about the government's recently announced home builder scheme. And and I think the terminology of a missed opportunity is is a really interesting one in this instance because obviously it's it's you know would be more positive if this was having a, a broader kind of public benefit in terms of social housing and so on. But the government might argue that this will you know effectively stimulate the construction industry and and provide jobs that are sort of lacking at the moment or people at risk of, of unemployment or underemployment might be kind of given a job through this process. Do you have much of a sense of whether that would actually result from the package as it currently is? Because um, I'd sort of imagine that there would be a, an ability for builders to, you know, find an extra $25,000 in an existing project without really necessarily having to take on too many additional labourers or, um, or colleagues. Yeah, that's a good point too. It's a little bit early to see how this will play out. Uh, We know already from some evidence that people are starting to uh, apply for this grant. So uh, that includes already people who are um, really fairly far down the track um, of um, thinking about building a new home. Um, We know that from um, the situation in Melbourne and elsewhere that that there are homeowners or, you know, would-be homeowners who are who are pleased to see this. And, and that's not surprising. It's not a bad thing. We we understand that everybody could do with a, a cash injection. Um, but whether that translates into an additional um, range of construction jobs is a question mark. Um, it, it, is, um, it is really important uh, that the government is responding to the construction industry in a way that safeguards uh, the skills and the expertise within the sector. And this is this is the very welcome part of uh, I think this thinking. We have a number of industries in Australia which are um, really potentially a pathway out of the economic recession that we're now in. Construction is one. Um, the other part that is very related to the construction sector is investment in renewables. So if we could think about. Um, building in in new ways, in smart ways that improve existing housing stock and create new supply that is really meeting or exceeding current energy standards. Uh, These are really welcome moves. But the the main question is, would existing projects and, you know, will will existing um, renovations and repairs actually go far enough? And I think there is a big question mark there around the extent to which this will stop the the cut of jobs in the sector, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting too because we know, and we know from previous conversations on this program that um, really uh, immigration or, or temporary migration was driving a lot of the demand in housing, particularly in cities like Melbourne. But on, uh, on a note, like the the state government and the federal government haven't ruled out investing in social or affordable or public housing, have they? Or is it? Are we sensing that this might be? The really the one big feather in the cap for the construction industry in this stimulus period? I don't think it will be. I think, um, so just um, many of your listeners will know this, but just to recap, so they're um, under federalism, the state and territory um, uh, governments really have major responsibility for the social housing, say um, public housing, community housing and, and state-owned and managed Indigenous housing which make up most of the social housing stock. Whereas um, 
broader construction policy, this broader stimulus is coming from the federal government. Here is where the states and territories have a really um, important role to play in also considering, uh, you know, thinking about how uh, the current waiting lists for social housing could be remedied in this stimulus kind of environment. And with the, um, the, the levels of stock that do need repair that are in shortfall, this is an opportunity for state governments to really um, to really step up in innovative ways. And I think and, and hope that we will uh, see more action from the states on this. The, the, the ways that the states and territories are acting across the countries, there are some variations, but all, of, all, all indications are that, uh, you know, to varying degrees, there is also a tension on where uh, any kind of construction money can be used well. In, in Victoria, we also have a program around rent relief where households who have um, taken an income shock in, the, in this um, pandemic uh, can apply for uh, a, just a rent relief payment that will... Um, it's the intention of government that would stop them from becoming homeless or re- at real um, acute risk of homelessness. Um, and, but our... Our research also shows um, um, that there is an absolute supply shortage of not only public housing but of also affordable lower-income private rental rental housing. And often it's the rental housing that has poor conditions and quality. So if some of this money um, could be used, for example, to uh, with, with incentives or you know, a carrot and um, stick approach potentially for private landlords. If there was a, a, a matched program that really promoted uh, private landlords taking up schemes that would repair their homes for tenants to live in and or, um, you know, in, take up some of the really good options there are for uh, uh, reduced running costs around um, solar panels and uh, lower water though, consumption. Sorry to, sorry to butt in, Wendy, but um, what, what's interesting is that if we go back towards the, the GFC stimulus, a lot of those ideas kind of played out, and I suppose we, we know it as the pinkback scheme, but um, there was more to it than that, and it didn't go so well, and I know at the time the um, you know op- opposition um, was quite vocal in, around that, but, I mean, is, do you think... Do you sense that's why maybe the federal government hasn't gone that direction this time, that the echoes are still there? Yeah, potentially. I think um, with, with any kind of um, um, money, you know, there, there would be a scare. There was certainly um, some of that expenditure, which was pretty much for a similar reason um, when we when we hark back to that. Um, there was a recession. There was a stimulus in construction. There was... There was an intent to keep people well housed, and and all of those things are still really valid. Um, to avoid, you know, those pink bat scenarios, um, and some I think some of the construction industry um, commentators from within the industry itself uh, are actually uh, probably quite nervous. I've seen some of the commentators from on on this point nervous about what they can, what they call sort of cowboy. Um, builders, if you like, and that's not my term, I've heard it from them, um, who uh, may, may sort of benefit but without doing um, work well. This is where we, we need to maintain just our regular good standards of building and building practice and use the money um, in ways that are regulated and monitored. And I think um, 
we, we shouldn't be scared off uh, using money for generalised good repairs of lower income housing in particular. Yeah, and I mean, one last question before we let you go. I mean, another criticism of this program is that it's, um, you know, many of the job losses and much of the, I suppose, the the insecurity around employment has hit young people and also women um, harder than men. But a stimulus package like this really is aimed at male jobs and not to, I mean, all jobs are important. Um, but is, again, is there a sense maybe in this sort of social policy area that, there's more to come perhaps to have a look at making sure that young people in particular find employment in, in a recession? I think, you know, I've, um, I think there's a double, um, a double point there. The, the current home builder grants, you know, the construction industry is, is um, you know, uh, overwhelmingly male. That's changing, which is welcome, um, but there is um, a predominantly male workforce. Um, but also... Um, the target of the grant, which is homeowners, is also not so much about young people nor about women recovering from life events. So there's a kind of double whammy there, and I, I would hope and like to see uh, a, a longer-term uh, smoothing of the income shocks that a lot of young people, a lot of uh, families have taken in the COVID context. So... That also means an extension to the job schemes and the job keeper, job seeker schemes um, that we see to avoid that cliff that people are uh, predicting for September, October, where people will be hit really hard. Thanks so much for um, joining us, Wendy. It's um, really great to have your insights. Thank you so much. Um, Wendy Stone there, Associate Professor over at Swinburne Uni and speaking there about the government's home builder scheme. Uh, I suppose, yeah, the, the mixed response from experts in the area with, um, I suppose, we, we can't rule out future policy and stimulus announcements, but this particular one, very narrow in its focus. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.